The Athletic. Hello, welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Adam Crafton is with us too. Later in the pod, we'll discuss Arsenal's chances of making the top four with James McNicholas. And a happy George Culkin will be with us to talk about Newcastle United's feel-good factor at St James's Park. We're going to start the pod with Burnley, though, who sacked Sean Dice last week. Andy Jones covers the club for the Athletic. Um, a crazy few days, Andy, is it... Um, has it started to make any more sense to you? A little bit, I guess. Um, it's still one of those that still is sinking in. I mean, sitting there on, on Sunday and, and not seeing Sean Dyche patrolling the technical area, suited and booted, uh, having a word with the fourth official, uh, all that type of stuff. It was just strange. It was just something that was just so bizarre to because to, it was so different. I think it's beginning to, to sink in now that, that this is barely post Sean Dyche. When did you start to hear murmurings? There was no indication. Literally, it was it was on Friday morning when it was just sort of, there, there was that beginning and, and I think the club broke the news just after half 10 and it was only about it around 10 o'clock when I started getting getting sort of, you know, indications that, that this was happening because it, it did come out of the blue and, and sort of everyone you, I spoke to on, on Friday was just, sort of in the same state of shock that I sort of was um, when I was ringing them up, going sort of what has gone on, what's what's the situation? Because I don't think that even though the knowledge result was was bad and, you know, was was probably the low moment of the season, I don't think at that point in time that there was there was a decision made that they, they, that Burnley were going to sack Sean Dyche at that point. I don't think there was. So, but there has clearly been a shift this week. And it led to sort of on Friday them believing that that was sort of the only option they they had if they want to try and stay in the Premier League. What I don't understand, and what I think a lot of people don't understand, is how you can lose on the Sunday and then wait until the Friday. The team travel to London on the Saturday, don't they? And then they play on the Sunday. So what's gone on during that week? A, it's evident they haven't got somebody in mind, otherwise they'd have, they'd have been in earlier. And secondly, that throws your caretaker team under the bus before they've even started in the sense that they haven't got any time at all to work with the team. So what on earth were they doing between Sunday and Friday? That's what I don't get. The only people who really know the answer to that are, are Alan Pace, Sean Dyche, and whoever was in you know, that meeting or who, who were part of that decision-making process. Because, I mean, the players were shocked by it. The players were surprised by it. There was, you know, there was there was a, there was a suggestion sort of as, as the day went on that you got, I got the impression that there was a feeling that change was needed, that things had gone a little bit stale at the methods. And I think there always will come a point at, at every club where there eventually becomes a point where the manager's, things that have worked so well become stale. But there was also that feeling that the dressing room wasn't quite, you know, 100% with them anymore. I expected when it happened on the Friday and I had those same questions and I've asked these questions to, to many people and, and that's the thing. No one quite knows why. And and as you say, I think the, the, coaching, the new coaching team would have had one training session on the Friday, which was... I've been told, you know, really good, which was quite fresh. There was a bit of freedom to it, which sort of indicates certain things as well. There was a, a press conference on the Saturday because when we found out the news, the Burnley would still 
had a press conference set for Sean Dyche on the Friday and on the Thursday night or the Thursday, Thursday afternoon, they'd sent an email out changing the time of the press conference. So even on Thursday afternoon, there was still, oh, Sean Dyche has moved this press conference. So, you know, even at that point, there was no sort of indication that, that this was going to happen. If the knowledge result was the final straw, then he, he should and, and would, that you would imagine, have been out the door Monday or Tuesday, and then it would have given them a bit more time. The plan is for them, as we reported yesterday in David Ornstein's column, is to appoint an interim till the end of the season and then look sort of longer term in the summer. But the fact that you haven't got somebody lined up, big questions have to be asked as to why that's the case. Yeah, it's interesting. Just speaking to a few different people close to players at Burnley over the past week and a couple said, you know, a couple were saying, oh, you know, the players are gutted and surprised, like they feel like he's the only manager, you know, particularly for some of them that have been there a long time. Like he's almost like their dad in football to a, to a certain extent and has guided them and mentored them. Um, the flip side of that is, you know, some people said, you know, the way that people see Burnley externally is not quite the same as the way it's been seen internally when you actually speak to, you know, people close to the board and the players over the past season. And, you know, one person just said, you know, that distance between the manager and, and the players has just grown over the course of the past season. And some of them aren't, you know, really aren't that devastated to see him go and did feel that a change was needed. And, you know, someone said to me, there was a feeling after the Norwich game that the players just weren't prepared, you know, to run through brick walls for Sean Dyche anymore in the way that they have been, you know, for a really long time. There was some feeling in the dressing room that actually, if it means, you know, playing for Ben Mee, who they've got a huge amount of respect for as captain, that if that gives them like that 5% extra edge and confidence as they have three or four win- winnable games coming up, I think the club thought that was worth a gamble. I mean, it's a heck of a gamble because, you know, you look at Burnley's finances and it's highly precarious because of the nature of the takeover. I think Sean Dyche is in line for a big payoff. And Burnley also have a lot of players, I think, out of contract in the summer. From a financial point of view, this 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 decision would worry me a lot. And also, if you do get relegated, and look, you, Burnley are going to get relegated at some point, right? It's what, Burn, it's what Burnley do, right? I don't mean that disparagingly, but the size of the club, the population of the town... They're gonna, you know, they've had a fantastic run in the Premier League, but they are gonna get relegated, you know, the same way Stoke did. What's surprising to me is Sean Dyche is surely the best person to get them back up. And when you think that the squad's probably quite likely to change quite a lot in the summer, with a few different faces, those methods that, you know, some people are saying are stale might not have felt that stale, you know, once you get going in the championship again. That was a general thing as well, is that, you know, if they go down Sean Dyche's record with Burnley in the championship is it's incredible. Over the two seasons, which both ended in promotion, the two full seasons he had, he only lost 10 games in total, which is, you know, in championship when, you know, teams are, you know, consistently have a potential of dropping points because it's such a, a bit of a mad league, isn't it? Like, that is an incredible record. But I guess if you are, if, if the sense is that you haven't quite got the dressing room anymore, I guess that, that does shift your opinion of what, I mean, there was there was a couple of, people who sort of suggested that sort of the it just didn't dice didn't seem the same as he as he had in the past he was a bit more he had a disengaged i don't know if that's the right word but there was just little changes that people noticed that weren't like massive it wasn't like he 
you know, he'd done anything bad, but there was just little changes that people had noticed of just in and around the training ground. And I think if he gets to that point, I think that's why that's why LK sort of made this decision because I think it, it sort of put to me that this is them attempting to not accept relegation because if they've sacked Dice because of under underperformance and they've won four games all season. So you you know you can understand that. And and sort of if you look over 18, eight, the 18 months as well. They didn't finish last season in good form. I think they lost sort of seven of the last nine or something like that. So this isn't a case of like it's come out of the blue and and sort of things. It does. It is in a sense because they just they beat Everton and that was sort of seen as right. Here's the moment where Everton comes together. But then they lost to Norwich and so that it changes again. But this, so this wasn't sort of a, a small blip. This has been sort of eighteen months of underperformance. And I think the idea was if they this is them trying to not accept relegation. So they felt the best chance. Of them staying up was to to make this change. I think the the one issue we've probably not discussed is the recruitment, and I think the new ownership have very different ideas to the way that Sean Dyche has recruited over the you know the past ten years or so, which is mostly you know players from the football league um, that, that that he trusts uh, to do the job that he requires them to do. Uh, and Burnley have changed the way they recruit. And Burnley, uh, I think they let go Martin Hodge, who was regarded as Sean Dyche's man on the recruitment side for quite a long time. He left earlier this season. And I think Burnley, you know, like a lot of clubs now, want to be more led from a data statistical point of view in terms of their signings. I think that worked really well with Max, Maxwell Corner. I don't think anyone would look at that signing and say, well, we got that one wrong. It's worked quite well with Veghorst as well, hasn't it? Do you know think? I think I it think started so. well and then it's tailed off. He's not scored the goals that he needed to score, but maybe that's not that easy in that Burnley team to score those yeah. goals. You know, regards to the rights or wrongs of that, there has been a disconnect between the management and the board, I think, over that. And I think that accumulation has probably built up as well as the underperformance. And, um, and it's left us where we are. Where next then for Burnley? And I suppose that's a that's a two part question, isn't it? And Ian, where next for the rest of this season? But then, where after that? The performance against West Ham was there was positives to take from it, and it, it did feel different. It did feel, you know, a bit you know fresh. There was a there was a bit more of an intent to play on the floor and sort of try and keep possession instead of sort of the, the sort of channel balls, which had very much become Plan A and, and had become a source of. Of frustration. So th- there was positives. I mean, if Maxwell Corne puts that penalty away just before half time, I would have backed Burnley to go on and win that game. And that's that's two more points gained that would have put them one behind Everton. And it, it is unfortunate for Corne because he has been, you know, he started so well, but he unfortunately may be part of the two moments within this running that I looked at as the reasons why Burnley go down because you, you look at them, the miss against Norwich. That would have brought it back to 1-1 and I would have backed Burnley to go on, on to win it at that point. And then the, the penalty misses had obviously led to, to a 1-1 draw instead of a 2-0 advantage. But they, they will take confidence from the West Ham game and they've got two home games which you would see as you know, potentially winnable. So they've still got a chance to, to, to stay up, whether that's with the current coaching staff in charge or if they do bring somebody in. But then, it, then you look to the future and, and regardless of which division you... Uh, they're in. You've mentioned it already, sort of the contract situation. There's, there's ten players out of contract. A couple of them will definitely use. Uh, some futures are, you know, more up in the air about what's going to happen. And they are looking to, you know, towards that longer term appointments. With and what does Alan Pace see as the, the future? What type of football does he want? You know, does he want a young coach? Does he want someone experienced to get them back into the the Premier League? Because 
as the financial aspect of it, if Burnley stay in the Championship for too long, then it becomes a serious problem. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, Andy? The final point is, you know, a lot of people have spoken about Michael Duff and there's an under, there's an understandable connection between Michael Duff, who played for Burnley, started his coaching career under Dyche at Burnley, very done an unbelievable job at, at Cheltenham. And when you interview Michael, he speaks brilliantly. I think he's a really interesting head coach. But actually, within the Football League, there are some really, really interesting head coaches who you could actually say, you know, Liam Manning at MK Dons, just to throw another one in there. You could go, do you know what? Actually, they could take Burnley in a really interesting direction. But that involves the executive looking towards the Football League, which Adam has said on a transfer policy is something they might be moving away from. I mean, manage a little bit different, isn't it? Because it's, it's that sort of philosophy. And if you give them the tools to then you know, recruit a bit more overseas. But I guess if you are in the championship, that overseas market might not be as, you know, accessible, I guess. Or, you know, you're looking at a different level of player and suddenly football league players become more attractive because of that that style of football, I guess. But you're right. And I think that's why they've they've kind of given themselves time and they're looking for this this interim appointments initially. And then because it's very difficult at this point to get a manager out of a club, you know, I mean, there's been links to, to Chris Wilder, but, you know, he's, in the, he's in, in the middle of a promotion sort of challenge with, with Middlesbrough. So it's like, can you realistically get him out at this point? Or is, is it more likely that the summer? Um, so I think that's why they've sort of given themselves this this breathing room of trying interviewing for, assist, for interim this interim position and then reevaluating, reassessing in the summer when they know what lead they're going to be in. You know what players they're gonna they want gonna to want to keep or who's gonna to want to stay um, because in the championship you, you know someone like Nick Pope for example is probably gonna to want to move on or and there'll be interest Cornet Vegos those types of players so then then you get a proper look and are able to, to sit down and, and assess and see where you want to take this and, and how you're gonna move forward. Thank you very much, Andy. Talk to you no soon. Problem. Speak to you soon. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Well, on to Arsenal. James McNicholas covers the club for The Athletic uh, and joins us now. Are, are you enjoying this race for fourth place? <laughs> I was until about a fortnight ago, and it's all sort of slightly gone wrong for me since then. But it is interesting. I mean, you know, uh, there, there are these three teams uh, contesting it, all flawed, all got their problems. Uh, and I guess it will ultimately be won by the, the best of a bad bunch. Just so we don't get loads of abuse, are, are, are we are we ruling West Ham out? Oh, I have done that, haven't I? <laughs> I know. I'm just trying just trying to protect you. No, I'll I'll take that one. I'll, I'll say that I've done that. I think you know uh, Europe. I think it, it might be a sufficient distraction for them to be ruled out of this stage. They've had a brilliant season, but I just think. As we approach crunch time, I think it's going to be between those other three. Here's the slightly odd thing in all of this, Adam. For all clubs, all these three, let's say, although you could use West Ham as an example in the Europa League this season. Arguably, for all of them, it might be more fun to not finish fourth 
actually. And if they finish fifth or sixth and finish, and played Europa League football next season, actually, it might be a better season for them. So when we're talking about this race for fourth, boardrooms are looking at it from a financial point of view and fans are looking at it in the hope that that means they can then attract Declan Rice, for want of a better example. I think the biggest con the Premier League has has produced over the last 10-15 years is convincing us that finishing fourth matters you know this race for fourth but you can't really dispute you know if you're Mikel Arteta, Antonio Conte or Eric Ten Hag going into Manchester United your aspirations are are helped by being in the Champions League in terms of who you can recruit who you can keep at the club what you're able to do from a wage structure point of view. I think you know some of the players though it doesn't always look like it watching you know Arsenal Man United at the moment I think quite a lot of them will probably be in line for wage reductions if they fall out of the Champions League. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case at Arsenal, certainly is at Manchester United. You know, there's a stake in it for players, for managers, for the board, you know, to get into that top four. And I think what it gives, particularly for those clubs like Tottenham, United, Arsenal, that consider themselves coming, it's, you know, it's, it shows a positive direction of travel. And I think particularly for Arteta, it would be a real affirmation of this thing might work whereas if he ends up sixth you're a bit like we put a lot of faith in him and what's it all for this season feels like a particular opportunity for Arsenal because they're coming through a season where they haven't had any European football whatsoever Uh, and actually I think history shows that can be a bit of a benefit we've seen the likes of Liverpool and Chelsea in the past benefit from that kind of schedule and I think Arsenal have for the vast majority of the season Uh, they've had a relatively light fixture list and I think it's suited them. It's enabled them to field their first choice 11, have quite a consistent team. And on top of that as well, you're talking about seasons in which both Manchester United and Tottenham have sacked managers. So things have certainly gone in Arsenal's favour. And I think it kind of opened the door to the top four and Champions League qualification for them. Uh, and that door now, they appear to be doing quite a good job of, of closing it themselves. So it, it would be, as Adam says, quite an underwhelming finish to the season. I think at the start of the season, Many Arsenal fans probably would have looked at a top six place as some kind of progress. But having been so close to the Champions League, uh, to lose it at this point would be, like I say, very underwhelming. If you take that step back, and I know they have been so close to the Champions League spot and they still might get that Champions League spot. But from having no European football to finishing fifth to some of the signings that they made at the start of the season to another season under the belt for Saka or, you know, Tierney until he got injured, whatever it may be. If you were to take a step back, you'd probably go more positives than negatives, wouldn't you? I think there's something to that for sure. I mean, I think if they got into the Champions League this season, they would be kind of ahead of schedule. Uh, And I think that that might induce some problems for them next year. I've kind of been watching this team thinking, I do not know how they would handle a campaign where they were fighting on the the Premier League front and the Champions League front. I mean, Arsenal's squad is very small and we're seeing that now. It'd be a huge undertaking in the summer in order to get them ready for that sort of season. Um, So, uh, yes, it would be a step forward. I think the thing is that how you finish a season is so important in kind of determining sentiment and how people feel about it. And I think Arsenal actually have had a pretty consistent campaign until this point, but it's in danger of collapse. And unfortunately, if that's how it's end, I feel like that's how people will remember it. And that's what could be a problem for Arteta, certainly as far as the fan base is concerned. You know, I think people were really 
uh, energized and prepared to give him a chance. But if it's another diminuendo at the end of the season, I do worry that some of that patience will evaporate. You wrote last week about Arsenal's January gambles and that they've left them in the hands of fate. What were those gambles and what could they have done differently? The main thing was that they didn't bring anybody in. You know, they they needed a centre forward and a central midfielder. They were relatively open about that. Mikel Arteta spoke about it saying, you know, we need to maximise every transfer window at this point in the project. Every opportunity we can to improve the squad, we've got to take it. Uh, they didn't. They decided they couldn't get the players they wanted and they'd hold fire until the summer. Now, there is an argument that's kind of a sensible strategy, but it has left them light because what they did on the other side of the coin, they also let a lot of players go. Pierre-Eric Aubameyang is obviously uh, the one that's a slight embarrassment at the moment with the amount of goals he's scoring for Barcelona, but things were clearly broken between him and the club. Listen, I can completely accept letting Aubameyang go. I think the decision to not bring anybody in to replace him, you know, you don't necessarily have to land the star name, the £100 million striker who's going to lead the line. At the current point in time, all you need really is someone who provides a more consistent, reliable option than Eddie Nketiah. And Arsenal didn't do that. And I think it's left them looking light. They've lost Thomas Partey in midfield. Again, they didn't get anyone in there. And I just think we're seeing some of the weakness of the squad exposed. They had a great opportunity in January. They were in such a strong position. They could have pushed on and really kind of cemented their grip on that top four place. They didn't take it. And it's a gamble that, as you suggest, I I think it's catching up with them now. Why did they not take it? What, you know, was it, did Arteta want those extra players? Was he happier with a small squad? Because we sometimes, I think the instincts of fans sometimes is say, why hasn't the club done this? Why hasn't the board done that? And a lot of these managers, you know, you look at the size of Man City's squad relative to previous years, it's a bit smaller. Sometimes the managers are actually happier, uh, I suppose, managing a smaller group. Yeah, I mean, that's a a good point. And there have been times this season where they've benefited from having that smaller group. Last season, they had this huge bloated squad. They couldn't even register certain players. You know, you may remember the likes of Meza Ozil, Socrates, weren't even named in the competitive 25-man squads. And, And Arsenal did make a decision, especially without European football, to have a more streamlined group. They felt it'd be easier to have everybody feel connected, part of it, got less unhappy people on the fringes and I think that side of it has worked out for them there's been a great spirit in the camp and they've really bonded there's been a togetherness but when it comes to January certainly everything Arteta said publicly suggested that he wanted additions he was pretty bullish about it about the need for Arsenal to push on now it didn't happen and you know what I understand is that it was a strategic decision they felt like they had their targets who weren't attainable in January They were prepared to wait for them until the summer. But that was a really high stakes gamble, I think, given what was at play. And it looks like it won't work out. But maybe, you know, as has been suggested, as Mark says, maybe that this is because they accept that if the next step is the top six rather than the top four, then, hey, that's part of the plan. And we're prepared to show that patience. Our faith in the manager isn't going anywhere. Maybe they're just taking a long term view. And to be honest, Arsenal have been criticised a lot for not doing that. It's tricky because they're in a position now where they, they probably have done that, but equally in the short term, it may cost them. And also, the fans of Champions League clubs who are already in next season's Champions League will probably laugh at me here and suggest I'm just grasping at straws. But, Adam, there is an argument that, uh, and certainly you could look at it from a Manchester United point of view here, that it, maybe if you're not in the Champions League, 
you you might get players with a bit more of the so-called right mentality of why they want why they want to come and join or play or whatever if you're looking at hunger and desire and what and what they want to build and you could say the same thing for Arsenal and you could say the same thing for Tottenham as well to an extent i mean i think you know manchester united's case they've often when they've fallen out of the champions league ended up just paying a lot more to get those better those better players and and really destabilizing their wage bill the challenge for them this summer, if you know, if um, they do fall out of the Champions League, is as you say to try and get those young, hungry, not not as obvious players, you know, as the ones that are currently being linked with, perhaps. But it depends what stage of players' development you get them at. If you, you know, when Man United signed Paul Pogba, I think they were in the Europa League, um, and they give you know obviously a huge contract, huge agents fee, and, and that kind of set the tone for like the next few years in terms of. Well, if he's on that, then he has to be on that, and he, and the other one has to be on that. So it's it's not it's not straightforward the recruitment side of it. And the flip side is, you know, last year Man United were in the Champions League for a second consecutive year. They felt okay. Now's the time to really kick on and get world class players. Baran, Ronaldo, Sancho, finished article, and sometimes that doesn't work. So I think it's probably a broader question about just how good each individual club is at identifying talent and and recruiting. That is something that Arsenal. I think they've done well this season. I, th- I think the strategy in terms of the recruitment has been good. And, you know, Adam mentioned Manchester United players staring down the barrel of a, a wage cut, potentially, if they don't make the Champions League. I think kind of the inverse is true at Arsenal, where they've let go a lot of players who maybe had played in the Champions League towards the end of their career. The guys they brought in, they've never been at that level. You know, you're thinking of the signings they made in the summer, uh, the likes of White, Ramsdale and others, the academy players, Saka, Smith-Rowe. Realistically, these guys have never been Champions League footballers. If they were to get there, they'd probably expect a wage hike or there'll be big renegotiations on some of those contracts, Saka and Martinelli due for talks in the summer. Um, So I don't think you can question the motivation of the group. Uh, The question is, I think, the depth and the quality. And and we're seeing that maybe in in some of these recent results. Just a final one. Um, if, If Arsenal don't get fourth, is the worst result Tottenham getting fourth, and I don't, I don't mean that as a, I don't mean that as a North London rivalry. I actually mean that as in a looking at similar players in the summer and and how actually your circum, you know, both in London, both great stadiums, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, there's a lot of stuff that's very similar. Yeah. But if one has Champions League football and one doesn't, then that's the difference between the two clubs. I think you're probably right in that respect. And, you know, United being the commercial powerhouse that they are, they're all, and the being Manchester United, they're always going to have that pulling power. Um, Spurs, obviously, they've got their stadium debt, but the Champions League would go a long way towards helping them uh, deal with that and give them budget to spend. And they are looking at the same players. I mean, the guys that Spurs brought in in January. Kulisevsky is a player that Arsenal watched really, really closely and, and liked a lot. Benton Kerr, they'd watched since he was a teenager. Um, you can go back to the summer. Arsenal and Spurs were both looking at Emerson Royale and Takahiro Tomiyasu. They ended up with one each. They are fishing in the same waters. And uh, I, I think if Spurs were to get you know, the, the boost of the reputation, the finances the Champions League brings... That might be a problem for Arsenal. Right, James, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of the season, if you can. I'll try. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stressors, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Well, let's end the pod talking about Newcastle. The Athletics' George Culkin was at St. James's Park at the weekend. Uh, this has been described to me as the feel-good section uh, of the podcast, which I'm guessing you've never contributed to before. No, I might have to sort of check check reality a bit there. The feel-good bit. No, that's not that's not my uh, place. That's not my place in the scheme of things. It's not certainly not <laughs> Newcastle's place in the scheme of things, but... No, it's. I mean, it's pretty astonishing, really, when you you look at where they were in December, having failed to win a game of any sort, to having thirty-seven points now, and you know they've won five games, five games in a row at home, only lost once in eleven games at, at home under Eddie Howe, and you know St James's Park is a place that people want to be at again, and that is quite unusual. I mean, I know it sounds so kind of basic, but the the sort of thing that I think. Um, that sort of hits on most of me is that in the in the first year of Steve Bruce's uh, time as manager, the club were uh, felt obliged to give away ten thousand part season tickets. And you know, in the public consciousness, we have this idea of Newcastle being, you know, a team that has this passionate, incredible support that they turn up come what may. And something fundamental was really broken at the club, was really fractured. And the the, the counterbalance to that is that over the past week or so. The club website has crashed repeatedly with people trying to buy tickets for the Liverpool match at home. And so that's the contrast. It's a place that people want to be at again. Do you know what? I, and that takes me back, really, to when we were having all the debates about ownership and investment and what was going to happen with, with Newcastle and their new owners and what the feeling of the fans were. And one of the things that, that we discussed around that time, you know, really did strike home with me then and comes back now which is you know if you live in a in a city where the owner of one of the biggest properties within that city hasn't showed any interest in that club or the surrounding area or the community or society and somebody is coming in and wanting to improve life for that society that club then that can that has to be a good thing and that gives them hope and actually you can see that in the fans at the moment they have hope yeah it's a powerful it's a it's a sort of powerful thing i mean the discussion about ownership is incredibly difficult it's something that i think about a lot and i'm not sure that i've found a way of um sort of dealing with that personally i'm not sure exactly what to do with it but um at the same time you know it's my job to cover the team and it's to report on what it's like inside the stadium and you know it's um i got there about an hour and a half before before the match started at the weekend and there were people on the streets at that time shearer's bar which has been renamed shearer's bar you know is crammed an hour and a half before kickoff there are people wanting to be at the stadium and again this is you know this is sort of my take on it but before then the match was the bit that got in the way of the weekend that people were going to the stadium under sufferance they didn't want to be there they knew that they weren't 
particularly wanted by the club. There was no communication between club and supporters. It was a very difficult place to go. The football was shit. Obviously, we know about that. We're sort of used to that. And there was those those sort of binds that tie people together and tie people to institutions just weren't weren't there. I mean, it's the again, it's just it's it's a facile point. It's a cliche, but the whole idea of a club is that you're all in into you know, you, you all buy into something that just wasn't there. And it is like that again at the stadium, for better or for worse, people want to be there. And again, the that simple thing of everybody in the stadium wanting the same thing is very powerful. Whereas any time over the past 10 years or more, you've got fans chanting, even when the team are doing well, which they weren't very often, you've got fans chanting against the owner, sometimes chanting against the, the manager, you know, a, a horrible relationship between everybody there, and it's the opposite now. I mean, just to move it to the football slightly, and yeah, I was just looking at Newcastle's defensive record, and I think when Ed, when Eddie Howe came in, he's been billed for years as you know this guy who plays attacking, progressive football, which is which is all true, but actually, in the past fifteen games, Newcastle have conceded more than once in a single game, only once, and that was. Um, in that, you know, what was really a one-off at Tottenham, wasn't it, when they collapsed? But other than that, it's been one goal or no goals a game that they're conceding, which, you know, when you bear in mind how many goals they've conceded under Bruce and up until the sort of end of December, I think that's been the most dramatic turnaround, really. And then they've almost relied on, you know, moments, I think it's probably fair to say, to to get the point. But, I mean, you look at the table now, they're three points off, off ninth. And... I think he's probably going to be, I mean, unless Jurgen Klopp goes and does something um, insufferable and wins a quadruple, then it's then it's going to be um, manager of the season, I think, because the situation he inherited and what he's done since has been remarkable. And particularly when you think as well, George, that the most the, the players he signed in January, he's actually been without them for quite a bit of it. Trippier's been out and... Bruno's only really come in the last few games properly. Yeah, exactly. Um, the Wolves match was Bruno's first uh, Guimaraes, uh, his first his first home start in the league. Leicester was the second. I mean, he's had a he's had a huge impact. People will point to the money spent in January quite rightly because it was a, a load of money, ninety two million. But yeah, the, I mean, the sort of interesting thing about that is who they spent the money on because Bruno was very much the the exception. I mean, he he is the future. That's the future that the club want to have that you know fans want the club to have but otherwise it was a very very pragmatic kind of revolution when you think that they paid 25 million quid for Chris Wood uh, when they brought in Dan Byrne from Brighton Matt Target has been brilliant from Aston Villa but on loan because he wasn't really getting a game at Villa and uh, yeah Trippier Trippier was a kind of standard bearer signing but as you say he's only started four games in the league and they've done all of it without Callum Wilson the money played a part but Really, it's about good coaching as well. You, you look at the team, they stumbled upon really Jolinton um, moving back into midfield after Kieran Clark was sent off at Norwich, but he's been exceptional. Shelby has had a new lease of life. Fabian Scher has been great at the back. People like Emil Kraft, who, you know, just hadn't looked like a footballer, is playing a part, has been really good in the last couple of games. Players don't come to Newcastle to get better. But they're they're getting better, and that's been you know that's been by virtue of competition. It's by virtue of having you know of having good coaches. And I would also say that in the two transfer windows before January, they hadn't signed anybody who wasn't called um, Joe Willock. And um, there's a lot of underinvestment to make up for. I loved Bruno's interview 
after the game. I think it was on Sky after the game. And you could actually just tell. Some, you can tell very very quickly, I think, with post-match interviews with players and the way they talk about the, the environment they're in, how much they're actually enjoying things. Um, I don't think they act in those, in those situations. And it felt like, you know, actually, this is a really authentically positive environment that the players are currently in. And they're really enjoying it. I'm just interested what you think will happen in the summer because I think there's a big expectation externally that this is going to be, you know, they, they did the business they needed to do in January. Now's the really exciting bit. Is it going to be more glacial than that? Yes, I think so. There's already been uh, sort of some uh, expectation management, I suppose you'd call that, from from Howe certainly last week. He said it's not going to be the revolution that people think it might be in the summer. They have... FFP concerns, which might sound crazy, bearing in mind they've not been there very long. They are very conscious of what happened to Everton and doing it doing it the wrong way. They've spoken about it, uh, when I say they, I mean uh, the, the co-owners, they've spoken about it being a sustainable business. Um, they'd spent much more money in January than they originally intended. We'll have to see what happens in the summer. It's, it's interesting. I've not got to the bottom of that yet, but you know they did have to plan more money in as soon as they got to the club to cover running costs. We haven't seen their latest accounts. Wage bill would have gone up significantly. And so clearly they're not going to come out now in April and say, yeah, we're going to spend an absolute ton of money in in the summer because everybody will see them coming. So that wouldn't be a very smart negotiating tactic. But yeah, I don't think they're going to be going out and spending hundreds and hundreds of millions of pounds. It goes back to Adam's point about Bruno Gamarish. It goes back to an earlier discussion myself uh, and Adam had about Arsenal, uh, Tottenham, Man United, who they look to sign in the summer, depending on whether they're Champions League or not. I mean, as well as it being pragmatic for Newcastle, they haven't signed any dickheads, have they? And and that's and that's and that's their probably their big thing for the summer as well. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the very nice things about what they did in January was that although you know it was a failing team at that point, a failing club. Um, there's always there's been this very good, nice spirit amongst the squad since they came up from promotion. That's been the thing that's kind of kept them up, I would argue, a sort of a good a good bunch. That's you know again, I know that's a cliche, but it's something that's repeated time and time again from people inside the dressing room that they're not they're not bad people that they want to do well. There is this theory that what How wants and what and what the ownership wants is for this team to grow. So they want people to get better within you know within the current squad. And to grow with the people that they bring in, and I, you know, I, I, I kind of love that about the team. I can, you can, I can forgive them losing when they're as wholehearted as they are. And in, in some ways, I'll, you know, if people like Matt Ritchie leave in the summer, as seems likely, I'll be sad about that because they've played a big, you know, big, big part since since promotion, and they've it's been a really, really tough part of Newcastle's history. But you know, it's that'll be the foundation that is built on. When we just go back to that January transfer window, who ran that transfer window in the end? Did it, did anyhow run that transfer window? And this transfer window would obviously be different. Well, we'll have to see how different it is. I mean, he he certainly. I mean, the way it's been put is that he uh, put to me is that he was effectively director of football during January. He was incredibly uh, involved when they went on their uh, warm weather training camp uh, stroke PR exercise to Saudi Arabia. You know, he wasn't on the training pitch very much because he was making phone calls. At the same time, Amanda Staveley and Murdad Gadusi, who um, sort of described themselves as the interim CEOs, they were doing everything. They were doing all the phone calls. I know that Amanda Staveley directly rang executives at another club trying to do a deal. So they were doing that. They They didn't have much sleep. 
they don't have that infrastructure yet. And, um, you know, Dan Ashworth is the man that they want as um, sporting director, not that recruitment is his sort of um, speciality, but he's a long way from being appointed at those things. Stand, he's still on gardening leave. And although they've uh, completed the sort of initial round of interview process for CEO, and that should be quite, you know, theoretically, that, that could happen quite quickly, uh, that person is not there yet. So um, will it be much different in the summer? It doesn't look like it at the moment, but, and I think it was chaotic in January. I mean, I think it, I mean, I think it was difficult for them. They've never done this kind of stuff before, but they got through it and they got through it. They got through it well. We will leave it there, George. We'll let you bounce off into the Newcastle sunshine. Thank you. That's it. If you want to read more on all of the stories we've discussed today on The Athletic, head to theathletic.com slash football pod. And I'll be back on this feed later this week for the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.